Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Whether it's Russian meddling, the Equifax breach, or Facebook's user data scandal, every day seems to bring a new cybersecurity crisis. What can Washington do to address these threats? What about private businesses? Later in the show, we'll be joined by a special guest who knows those questions well, Secretary Jay Johnson, who led the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. But before we get to that, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. Guys, there's so much news. Busy week. Yeah. Yeah. um, Let's just talk a little bit about some of the stuff we're not going to be able to fully fit into our show this week. Well, I mean, first of all, this... I should tell you guys, this isn't actually a podcast. It's a funeral. It's a funeral for attorney-client privilege. (laughs) It was declared declared dead on Tuesday morning. You got to do the Cronkite, take your glasses off as you say that. Uh, It uh, left, uh, it took no no spouse and left no children, but leaves behind close confidants, doctor-patient privilege, and uh, (laughs) whatever you tell the priest. I object to this eulogy because (laughs) attorney-client privilege is not... Um, with no exception. What these two people are alluding to yeah, there is you the go. fact that <laughs> President Trump's lawyer's uh, office and hotel room and his apartment, right? Sounds were great, raided yeah. by FBI agents on on Monday. Michael so that's Cohen. Obviously, something that's been going on in the news. Also, Zuckerberg uh, on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I've been watching Facebook that really closely. Live it was political theater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, an odd dynamic up there. It was sort of like. He what he wasn't exactly as forthcoming as everybody wanted, but then people were as critical of him as they were of the lawmakers. I think the only true takeaway is that when people like two years ago were talking about like, will Zuck- Mark Zuckerberg have a political career? Definitive answer of no. <laughs> see, my big takeaway is that I love these surreptitious things that happen. Which uh, did you see the reporter who took a picture of Zuckerberg's notes that he left out? Oh, I thought you were going to say that. he was sitting on a cushion to make him well, not look also, like a little boy. There's also um, that, but no, like took a picture of the notes, and I love any story where somebody just because they have, we all have cameras in our pockets all the yeah. time. So yeah, some reporter took a picture of his notes and so you could zoom in and read all of his like talking points and he was prepared for a lot of stuff. Well, I, Mike McInerney, one of our DC guys who's been on the show before was like, oh, it, it, he was chatting me at the time when it was going on. He's like, uh, Pierce Zuckerberg may have left his notes open. I'm like, well, what could be in there? Uh, Senator, my team will get back to you on that. I, <laughs> I mean, that was like, if you were drinking, if you took a drink every time he said that, it was, uh, you were stumbling out well, of the office. Well, it, it was actually pretty interesting because it had like little subheads of, it was like a masterclass in how to prepare for a yeah. wide range of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it had little subheads about like how to answer if they accuse Facebook of being a monopoly, yeah. how to answer if, and it just it was the gamut of things. Yeah. Don't tell them you harvest people for data. <laughs> <laughs> Like some sort of matrixy scheme. Yeah. So there's lots going on, but uh, and you know if you want to read more about all that stuff, we've got requisite coverage at Law 360. Knock yourself out. Requisite. Yeah. The um, good the, coverage. The one. Uh, the one uh, thing that we did want to go pretty deep on this week before we get into our main segment with Secretary Johnson uh, is another labor case. Talked labor and overtime wages last week. Um, here we're talking about a really interesting case that deals with um, the gender pay gap. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an interesting decision out of uh, uh, California, the Ninth Circuit. And it's this thing where, you know, we've passed many laws in the country to address the wage gap, whether it's the Equal Pay Act uh, many decades ago or the Lilly Ledbetter Act in the Obama administration. But still, it persists. I think it's up to like women earn about 80 cents for every uh, uh, dollar a man earns. And part of the reason when you talk to people about that is that the, the disparity was so deep for so long. It's baked into our whole system. That when people, um, you know, when men and women are ascending up the corporate ladder in mm-hmm. their various businesses, if you peg 
pay increases to salaries that they earned before, you can see how that can perpetuate right. this thing. Systemic kind of, inequality has a long shadow. Right. And uh, that's very well put. And that that is what the Ninth Circuit tried to get at um, uh, with its new ruling uh, that came out on Monday. Uh, the entire 11-judge panel ruled that doing what I just described, using salary history to justify paying women less than men, was in itself a form of gender discrimination, which violates the Equal Pay Act. And uh, in making that ruling, they uh, overturned more than three decades worth of legal precedent. So very interesting. This is a big one. Um, And it also landed at an interesting time because weren't we right around Equal Pay Day? Yeah, it came out out the day before. (laughs) Yeah, right. It was someone was really thinking there. Yeah, it came before Equal Pay Day. Um, Really interesting case. We can run it down very quickly. Um, You know, folks, you don't have to be a math teacher to know that 80 cents is less than a dollar. That's exactly what the plaintiff in this case was. It was a California uh, math teacher named uh, Aileen Rizzo. Uh, please no snickering from the gallery <laughs> over there. Uh, she it was just a pretty transition. Well, yeah. uh, she discovered, Miss um, Rizzo discovered um, that the school district that she worked in uh, had a policy in place that's a lot like what I just described. They had to pay new hires slightly, you know, X percentage more than right. they earned at their last job. Uh, she sued the school district and basically said, having this policy in place only, like you say, bakes in uh, the gender wage gap that's been plaguing us for decades. Um, so it was sort of a long and winding legal battle. She lost at the district court level and at her first swing uh-huh. at the Ninth Circuit at the three-judge panel, but it came up for en banc review. All 11 judges uh, handed down a ruling uh, that basically overturned this 1982 decision that had said that... Um, Salary history is a factor other than gender that a company can use to justify differences. So, you know, the the Equal Pay Act generally says you have to pay them the same. The court had previously interpreted like, okay, if you're pegging to past salary, that can justify a disparity. The court here has said uh, no more, basically. They've just sort of tossed out that 1982 decision. Sort of a strange situation, too, with the judge who wrote the opinion. You said it was the en banc, so the whole court was involved, yeah. but particularly the judge who who penned the opinion, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's an interesting case on its own merits. And then when I was preparing for the show, it was written by uh, Circuit Judge Stephen Reinhardt, who, um, if you've been paying attention to the world of law, um, you may remember that he actually passed away last month uh, at the age of 80 after a heart attack. So this is one of the last uh, opinions with his name on it. We don't know what else he's got This in fits into his um, his body of, of jurisprudence, though, because he was known as a very uh, robust liberal voice on yeah. that. Yeah, you, you saw the line liberal lion a lot. <laughs> oh, sure. The, uh, yeah, sure. a liberal titan, a liberal lion, and he suitably ended up in an extremely liberal court. Um, but he stood out even among his peers there, and uh, it really shined through in one of his last pieces of writing here, some some choice uh, excerpts that I thought were pretty illuminating. Uh, he's talking here about um, uh, the Equal Pay Act. Although the act has prohibited sex-based wage discrimination for more than 50 years, the financial exploitation of working women embodied by the gender pay gap continues to be an embarrassing reality of our economy. So, Yeah, not mincing words about that. Not, not mincing words about that, and then as he pivoted to past decisions, like we say, that that had taken root in the judiciary that kept this in place, um, again, sparing no no words, said uh, to allow employers to capitalize on the persistence of the wage gap and perpetuate that that gap ad infinitum would be contrary to the text and history of the Equal Pay Act and uh, would vitiate the very purpose of the act uh, for which the act stands. So you can see there, um, 
in pretty clear language, uh, sort of doing away and saying, this is one of those things where we've talked about before in other cases, the law can sort of lag behind conventional thinking. I mean, nobody, I mean, nobody kind of makes a straight faced argument for the wage gap, oh, sure. but there's always like, well, you know, there are mitigating factors in play. So this seems like a big victory on equal pay day. Yeah, taking at face value, it certainly is. And like we said, the judge did not mask his distaste for this policy. But like a lot of things, um, there were some gray areas in some of the things that the court discussed about how this should be implemented in the workplace and in lower courts. Uh, Braden Campbell wrote a really great feature for us. Uh, you should definitely check it out to get the fuller picture, but uh, definitely a big decision nonetheless. Hi guys, it's me, Amber. We're just about to get into our main segment with Secretary Jay Johnson. But I just wanted to let everyone know that we recorded that last week before Mark Zuckerberg appeared on Capitol Hill to talk all about what's going on with Facebook. You're going to hear us reference some of the hearings that are upcoming. Just know that we recorded this ahead of that. Enjoy the segment. Over the past several years, cyber threats have exploded into the mainstream consciousness. Russians meddled in the 2016 election, and nearly 148 million Americans had their personal data compromised when Equifax suffered a data breach last year. Today we're joined by a guest who knows a lot about the cybersecurity landscape. Secretary Jay Johnson, who led the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration, and has now returned to private practice at Paul Weiss. Welcome. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Amber. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you because it does feel like every week I'm hearing about a new cyber threat, either to the government or to private companies, new data breaches. So can you just tell us how you see this landscape? Is it as bad as I think it is? I like to say in speeches that cyberspace is the new battle space. When I came to the Department of Homeland Security in December 2013, I had a counterterrorism orientation mm -hmm. for my four years as general counsel of the Department of Defense. I spent a lot of time on counterterrorism issues, national security issues generally. And I said in speeches when I was Secretary of Homeland Security that counterterrorism should remain the cornerstone of the DHS mission. A building can have more than one cornerstone, so right. cybersecurity needs to be the other. In my judgment, the cyber threat to our homeland, to our nation, takes many forms. Bad cyber actors exist in many different forms. Nation states, criminals, hacktivists, those who engage in ransomware, those who engaged in the theft of intellectual property. And I believe the cyber threat to our country will get worse before it gets better. Uh, we have yet to turn the corner. Those on offense are increasingly aggressive, ingenious, tenacious, and those of us on defense in the private sector and in government struggle to keep up. And so there are all manner of cyber attacks here in our country, daily, weekly, hourly, and probably since I walked into this studio. So um, once I, now that I've returned to Paul Weiss, everyone, all of our clients want to know about cybersecurity. Right, yeah. And so that is always topic A. 
when I do public engagements, whether it's a podcast like this or a speech like the one I'm giving later today or the testimony I give to Congress, which I did last month and will probably do so again soon. Like you say, there's all manner of cyber intrusions uh, and hacking activities that are a threat. But of course, the one I think that jumps to a lot of people's minds when this issue comes up is um, the Russian effort to interfere in the 2016 yes. presidential right. election. Um, right. You were, know a little bit about that. Yeah, yes. well, then that's why we're happy you're here. Um, but the you know you were at DHS in the run up to that. Um, was that the kind of thing that was on your radar uh, at all? I mean, were there were, were there steps you took to try and head off things like that? In my daily intelligence briefing while I was secretary, there'd always be something about the latest cyber intrusion, cyber surveillance, cyber attack, cyber theft. For example, in 2015, we had a rather large hack and intrusion into the security files of the Office of Personnel Management. Of course, yes. The U.S. government. I and the Director of National Intelligence, as you'll recall, issued a statement on October 7th, 2016, formally pointing the finger at the Russian government Mm -hmm. about their efforts to interfere in our democracy in 2016. And what the Russians did, we're learning more and more all the time. Right. At the time, we didn't completely understand the full extent of it. But Mm -hmm. what now appears to be the case is that the Russian attack really took three forms. One was the basic, and I say basic because it's something we've seen in numerous contexts, basic hacking and intrusions into the DNC Mm -hmm. and other people, other entities to steal emails, private emails, and make them public. Bucket number two was the scanning and probing we saw around election infrastructure, which frankly concerned me the most at the time because I was concerned that there might be an effort afoot to erase voters from the rolls or alter their names. Tampering with the actual mechanics of casting votes. Tampering with the actual mechanics of our democracy, voting. Mm -hmm. And then bucket number three, which I think we're still learning the full extent of, and it's reflected in the indictment by the special counsel of the 13 Russian individuals, Mm -hmm. were the efforts to publish and republish fake news Mm -hmm. and extremist views. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll be years before we understand the full extent of that. And in many ways, that is the most impenetrable and difficult problem to solve in our democracy and our open society. Well, you just said that it could take years to understand the full extent of the of the threat. But are there are there speaking in broad strokes? Are there steps that that the current administration could take that they maybe aren't now? Are there are there uh, maybe retaliatory measures that that could be put into place to to deal with this now? For starters, when you're dealing with a nation state, whether it's a communist regime, a dictatorship, a democracy, nation states respond to deterrence. They respond in ways, well, they will decline to do something if they believe the behavior is cost prohibitive. If the target, if the other nation involved makes something cost prohibitive Mm -hmm. and puts in place a sufficient deterrent, nation states will respond. In the Obama administration, we imposed a number of sanctions on on December 29, 2016, as we were leaving office. Uh, Obviously, the Russian behavior insofar as trying to influence our democracy, if you believe the testimony of our intelligence chiefs, has not been deterred. And I do believe their testimony. I'm pleased that 
this administration has put on more sanctions, uh, and we've got to keep at it mm -hmm. because my view is the Russians will not stop until they believe that their behavior is cost prohibitive. And then on the on the defense side, mm -hmm. uh, there are a number of things that we should be doing and that we are doing with election infrastructure. Just before I left office, I declared election infrastructure to be critical infrastructure in our yep. nation. Uh, but education, awareness about the evils of phishing and spear phishing, mm -hmm. in my experience, the most devastating attacks from the most sophisticated actors come from a basic act of right. phishing, right. spear yeah. phishing. They start in the most basic of ways. Yeah. And so whether you're Law 360 or a law firm or an academic institution or a government agency or a financial services firm, you can put in place a multi-million dollar cybersecurity system with all the bells and whistles. But if one, an employee, right. <laughs> if one employee decides to open the door and answer that knock yeah. and open that attachment, yeah. the bad actors in your system, in the gate, and can roam around and pose as virtually anybody, a system administrator, virtually anybody. So increasing the awareness and the education of those who use our systems mm -hmm. is one basic thing here. When it comes to election cybersecurity, and I'm bouncing around a little bit here, I'm pleased that our state election officials seem to be taking this seriously. Uh, we're in the midst of an election cycle right now. And then when it comes to what I referred to earlier, which is you know the, the, the fake news, which has a cyber component to it, but yeah. it is not exclusively a cybersecurity problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fake news and publication and republication of extremist views that is not, in my judgment, that particular problem, in my judgment, is not a matter for the security agencies mm -hmm. of our government. If there is foreign influence that violates federal election laws, that's a matter for our federal election laws. Yeah, yeah. If there's criminal behavior, that's a matter for law enforcement. But we have to be careful about trying through security agencies to regulate Political speech. Right. Well, well in I have this a. Country. Yeah. Well, speaking of a government response, you mentioned sanctions, and uh, even as we record this today, recording on Friday the sixth, uh, the Trump administration teed up some new uh, sort of cyber tangential Russian sanctions. Uh, I'm the trade reporter in the room, so I'm, I have a, a specific interest in sanctions. Do you think? Um, I mean, these are economic sanctions we impose. Do you think that it can actually enact change through the economic means that they're uh, on their own terms, or is it merely like a naming and shaming type of thing that can in my bring someone experience? To the table? I just thought it was an interesting tool, especially when it was after like the North Korea Sony hack. I think uh, President Obama proffered that new EO, like saying right. we're going after it like, Correct. with sanctions. Now. Correct. In my experience, governments do not like to be sanctioned. They do not like to see sure. their officials sanctioned, yeah. whether it's Russia or others, uh, Russia, China, or numerous others. They don't like to be sanctioned. They don't particularly care to be named and shamed. Right. My basic view, once we go down this road, mm -hmm. it's a bit of a chess game. And you have to know what the next move by the person on the other side of the chessboard is gonna be. And uh, whether it's uh, sanctions mm -hmm. or tariffs, yeah. it's a bit of a chess game. You have, to, you have to know what the end game is, what the strategy is, anticipate your adversary's next move. So we've talked a lot about Russia, but are there other threats that you think should be on everyone's radar? Of course, um, absolutely. So are there ones that are more than just worrying about our elections, which is a big deal anyway, but we also have critical infrastructure that critical can be Critical infrastructure, ransomware, basic criminal behavior, hacktivist. Uh, as I said a moment ago, um, 
people, people who engage in this behavior are, are becoming increasingly sophisticated and aggressive. And nobody is immune. Uh, when I would read intelligence reports while I was in office, I would constantly ask my staff, why, why are these cyber actors targeting this or targeting that? No one is immune. Very often it's basic surveillance activity okay. uh, or something is implanted in a system mm -hmm. that sits latent for years. Very often it's an effort at political activism, which could turn into criminal behavior. And very often it's ba basic theft of intellectual property. And so the bad cyber actors are not at all limited to nation states. They're private actors. And the response has to be a public-private partnership in this country. Pivoting from the government side to, to looking at the business community, which we've sort of hinted at yeah. um, throughout this, um, you know, we saw Equifax last year, which we mentioned up top, but we saw it was Uber before that. It was Yahoo before that. What Could you sort of walk us through the, the biggest threats that are facing private businesses when it comes to cybersecurity and data protection? I would say theft of financial data, mm -hmm. theft of personal data, theft of intellectual property. Um, not necessarily in, in that right. order. So it's right. theft of everything that's important to a yeah. business, basically. It's, <laughs> Any it's, business yeah. that has custody of vast amounts of personal customer data, mm -hmm. for right. example, like your credit card number, uh, your social security number is vulnerable to attack. Any, any, any business that collects and is custody of vast amounts of personal data of its customer base. Um, businesses are, are, are need to be concerned about protecting their own trade secrets, their own sure. intellectual yeah, property right. also as well. Well, and so, on, on oh, sorry, Amber, go ahead. Uh, so, um, if you have a client that comes to you, I mean, you're an expert in this area. I'm sure you get this question a lot. What are those businesses to do? What are the best things that they can guard against this kind of intrusion? Increasing investments in technology, cybersecurity technology. As I said a moment ago, increasing the awareness of those that use their systems about the evils of a cyber attack mm -hmm. and the vulnerabilities and the risk. How many of us, we all know not to open a suspicious email. How many of us know what to do with it when you receive right. it? Sure. Right. And uh, you'd get a range of answers. And so at the Department of Homeland Security, when I was there, we'd run exercises on people. So you'd get an email, free Washington Redskins tickets. Yeah. Click yeah. here. And sure enough, hundreds of people would do exactly that, the Washington Redskins fans. And they'd be told, report to room so-and-so on Monday morning to get your free tickets, and instead they'd get a cyber hygiene lecture. Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, we've talked about that before in the big law context, but benevolent hacking, I guess, or whatever you would Well, it was a particularly, that. it was, it, they were- ethical hacking. Yeah, there yeah. you go. People yeah. were offered, uh, uh, one scheme that we saw with in big law was that people were offered awards for their, you know, that you oh, had that's been right. named Best to lawyer top in the US lawyer in yeah. X region. And so like the, the, the ego of it would sort of blind you for a second and you would <laughs> click the link. Right. So, you, you already spoke about uh, there's a yeah. and, and this is not necessarily a cyber problem per se, but there are emails going around this country, supposedly from me, Jay Johnson, <laughs> chief of Homeland Security. Right. Um, 
there is a hundred million dollars somewhere in another continent. Mm -hmm. You oh, can help geez. us get it back. <laughs> yeah. We actually scanned your, your biometrics where you came in the studio <laughs> to make sure you were actually who you said you were. Right. Um, right. Now, you, you spoke earlier about um, how there's... We, that could be a whole other conversation. <laughs> <laughs> there needs to be um, a two-pronged you know, public-private response to problems like this. Correct. I mean, what, and a partnership. Yeah. Well, what do you have a vision for how that would work? Is there something that private businesses can learn from government institutions or vice versa? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, can, do you have an idea of what that would look like? There are sectors that are tremendously sophisticated when it comes to cybersecurity. Yeah. I have been in the cybersecurity ops centers of a lot of my clients who are very sophisticated when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, they have the ability to see, for example, a large uh, exfiltration of data yeah. from a user's email uh, anywhere in their network. And even the most sophisticated of clients in financial services or, or high tech still benefit from information sharing yeah. with the government okay. about the global threat environment, about the latest threat stream. And frankly, when I was in office, we set up Government loves acronyms. AIS. I <laughs> sure. set up. I cover trade uh, policy. I know all about acronyms. Auto automated information sharing. Yeah. It's remarkable mm -hmm. that before I got there, we didn't have that. We are now at the Department of Homeland Security able to share uh, near real time information about cyber threat indicators. We just got to get the, gov the government and the private sector to work together on this. So I was disappointed that once we established that capability, we did not have more private partnerships with those willing to share their cyber threat indicators because they're concerned about confidentiality, they're concerned about revealing vulnerabilities to the government, and once they do that, it may get passed on to other government agencies and possibly become public. Well, let's talk a little bit about things that they're worried about there being passed on to other agencies and maybe right. more regulation of private business. Do you think the government should take a more active role in mandating what some of these big companies like we just saw you know Facebook had the Cambridge Analytica issues and we've seen a lot like that that are impacting huge portions of the US population and right. their data so right. should the government be more active in this space interesting question um, and I'm sure Congress will be pursuing this in the short term I think Mark Zuckerberg is testifying next week uh, yeah before some yes, he is. committee, the committee I think, escapes me but yeah I think Tuesday I'll be morning on, yeah I think I'll be on the hill exact same time oh, okay. <laughs> which means my testimony will get no coverage <laughs> tell, tell uh, them what a great experience you had on pro se I'd love to talk to <laughs> so um, look I talked a moment ago about the problem of fake news and 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 republication of extremist views a separate problem we have is Americans have either consciously or naively surrendered a lot of our private information right. to the internet, to the cloud. If it's free, you're the product. And yes. you know, when I grew up, even a library search was considered sensitive. Even the mm -hmm. books sure. I checked out of the library was considered sensitive. Right. We have indulged ourselves by surrendering so much to the internet and made so much available about our personal lives, our search histories, our, our, our purchasing history, mm -hmm. uh, who we talk to and what we say to the internet that it is now exposed to those we surrender it to, those who then pass it on to somebody else with an, un with an understanding of confidentiality, who then share it with somebody else for a different purpose. And so 
we're in a place where we're dealing with an industry of social media providers, but also data intelligence firms, those that engage in data mining. And there is far more available about Americans than I think most Americans appreciate. And that is highlighted by the Cambridge Analytica episode. And so a lot of lawmakers will be searching for answers to this like they always do. And this is largely unregulated space in my view. Yeah. Um, The Facebooks and the Googles try to self-regulate. They offer guarantees of privacy and they make conditions on those who borrow their data. But this is largely unregulated space. And it's not so much a privacy issue. We think of it as a privacy issue. It is also a security issue because when you have that much information available on the internet about yourself, it becomes a cybersecurity issue because it can be exploited and misused but, but, and stolen. Yeah, w- without a doubt. Um, I mean, do you think we've we've talked in sort of two different buckets here about a public-private partnership to address the issue and also the need for regulation? Do you think it's more appropriate for the government to have a collaborative relationship with the tech sector in this regard, I, that, or a more oppositional <clears throat> regulatory? I think that is a political question because you have to look at what is achievable. And what is sustainable? So right. in 2012, Congress went down the road of trying to regulate certain minimum basic cybersecurity standards. Mm-hmm. That effort failed. Okay. And so you really have to look at what is achievable. Is there something teachable there, from that process, you think? Uh, yes, that maybe self-regulation with some level of enforcement by government agencies is the proper course versus doing nothing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but you have to look at what's really achievable and what's doable. I've had conversations with clients in the financial services sector about this exact issue. Would you rather have regulation or self-regulation? One interesting response I got was, if I could have one standard regulated by one government agency as opposed to <laughs> well, multiple sure. standards sure. by multiple government agencies, I might take that. Yeah, I'm not so, sure that's the prevailing view across all financial services. Right, but that's yeah. one. Point it's of view telling though. Yeah, right. So as we wrap up this conversation, um, we're wrapping I'm, up already. I, we are. I know it goes by so fast when we're having question, such a fun. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's not. It's not on topic. You have something <laughs> else. Things, well, so. I was just gonna. I wanted Talk to talk about immigration, terrorism. <laughs> I feel like natural we, disasters. I had it all, by the way. You did. It's such a huge. I mean, 22 depart- agencies within the department. It's so big. Yes. Um, there were days I felt like I had one third of the federal government to run and two thirds of the problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that plays into actually what I wanted to ask you as our last question here. I started this conversation saying, is it as bad as I think? And now I'm leaving this conversation more informed, but thinking it's terrible right. and privacy and it's cyber It's going to get worse are, before it gets better. Is yeah. there, can you tell us just a little nugget about the better? Can you leave us with some hope? Where do we think we're going to see some bright spots in this, what feels like a very massive problem? I'm asked that question a lot. <laughs> Can you give us some hope, please? Yeah, because I mean, you, we have this great conversation, but it does right. leave you thinking like, oh, we're also vulnerable. Yes, and in, in many ways, it's like trying to catch all the raindrops outside. Yeah. And I think that there are two things that are key. One, investments in technology that can prevent exfiltration by known bad actors, but also exfiltration by suspicious actors and, and I, and I think we're on that road, and just increased awareness about cyber threats and about how to not answer the door if you don't know who's knocking. Right. 
So the start is everyone can listen to this podcast and know a lot more about this issue. All lawyers who are your consumers and (laughs) customers can listen to this and learn from it. I know a lot of people who listen to podcasts. It's interesting. I have one more to get you out on. You are a former Obama cabinet official. I am dying to know if you were ever part of the famed Obama basketball games. (laughs) The regular basketball game. Do I, do I look like I'm only six feet tall? I didn't want to presume. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me about being designated survivor or <laughs> also like, interesting. What it's like to ride on Air Force One or something like that. I noticed you've not answered the <clears throat> basketball question. <laughs> uh, no, okay. the answer is no. no. Uh, well, I'm, it can't, I, am not I, mean, a, I am not a basketball. Player. Not everyone can be Arnie no. Duncan. That's <laughs> well. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. That was our interview with Secretary Johnson. I really enjoyed it. How about you, Bo? I thought we hit on everything, except for it would have been nice to talk about the Mark Zuckerberg stuff. Uh, yeah. But, you know, such is life. Yeah, I mean, now that I'm looking back on it, I should have asked some designated survivor questions. <laughs> Def- definitely an oversight on my part. Uh, but maybe we can have him back. I don't know. Well, we've made a new friend. We'll ask him about it next time. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our special guest this week, Secretary Jay Johnson, and contributing reporter, Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we talked about, and there was a lot today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps everyone find our show. Thanks and see you again next week.